Hi, Summer. We're excited for this conversation with you. Um, in this podcast, we hope to understand what uh, gets people going, what are the intrinsic motivations, how did they get to the position they're at, and essentially, what are the mental models with which they operate. The larger goal being to help people make more informed career choices and hopefully um, move towards a career that they really care about. So let's get started by um, understanding a bit about you. So who are you and what do you do? Um, so I like to think of myself uh, as an explorer at heart. Uh, and this is, uh, you know, come from, you know, uh, sort of studying my past and my decisions uh, in hindsight. And, uh, you know, I, for example, when I was... Uh, in school, you know, I after the tenth grade, I switched boards. I switched school to a um, to from CBSE to IB, uh, which was you know not very well known in India at the time. You know, the prospects of it after school after school in India were not very well known at the time. Uh, even though it was a you know well renowned curriculum, I uh, you know when I was in college, I I took a sort of for that time I took an unconventional specialization. Again, not sure if you know my long-term leanings will be in the banking and finance space, uh, e-banking and finance space. Um, and then you know, one year into sort of my banking career, I uh, uh, did a complete one eighty and spent the next about six seven years, which initially with a plan to only spend six months, but I spent the next six seven years in filmmaking. Uh, and so you know, all along I had you know I've tried to. Uh, you know, do what what uh, at that moment feels right to me. Uh, so there's obviously some planning that goes into it, but largely when I look back, it seems adventurous, and uh, uh, I think it, it it brings out the adventure of not knowing which uh, way I'm 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 going towards. I think brings it brings out the explorer in me. Um, what I'm doing currently is we are building a platform. Uh, TED Talks plus LinkedIn style platform for performing artists um, and so we've been on it for the last year, year and a half uh, since I've been in India in between my in between filmmaking and uh, and my startup uh, I went and did a year of uh, my MBA at HBS uh, I took a short sabbatical which I'm on right now and I'm working on archery which uh, which yeah is a work in progress why are you doing it? Uh, it's so it obviously uh, you know derives from a place of, of, of deep passion for me I am uh, you know my sister and I have co-founded this venture together and uh, you know we have she's an artist we have both worked with a lot of artists and uh, the first thing that uh, you know we have the, the one pattern that we have been able to draw between all artists is that uh, it's it's not a very sustainable venture for most of them, so that I think that was a driving force in terms of uh, uh, in terms of starting something where you know we can probably make a change in a few, if not uh, if not most or all lives, uh, and that was to make performing arts a more sustainable venture, and so we've had our trials and tribulations. We've taken the trial and error method of seeing what works, what doesn't. Uh, but this is one complaint, so to say, for lack of a better word, that you'll see from artists all around the world that, uh, you know, in a capitalistic society, the money stops at the top of the pyramid, doesn't trickle down as it probably is supposed to. And so, you know, f the artists suffer the most where, 
you know, I like to say that artists most of the time are driven by by creativity and passion than by say the finances. But then you know, in in our world today, finances do become important. Uh, you got to pay the bills, have to run the family, mm. and so that for a majority of the artists, that's not the case. Uh, and you know, when we look at celebrity musicians or artists. Uh, touring the world, selling, you know, performing at sold-out stadiums, we just come to think that that's a reality. Whereas it's not. It's like if you, you know, if you're sitting in a tennis stadium watching uh, Nadal or Federer play, you think this is the life of a tennis player, where you travel the world, stay in five-star hotels, uh, and play in front of sold-out audiences. That's not the case. I mean, majority, uh, it's only the top fifty or top hundred players that make the money. And same way with artists, the top fifty, hundred make some money. Uh, and so we wanted to change it for the for the for the volume of the mass, which is below that, say, top hundred artists, musicians, sports mm-hmm. people, whatever you want to call them. But why do it in the middle of uh, Harvard Business School? Uh, so this so we had started Artry before I went to HBS, uh, and you know I I like to say serendipitously it, um, serendipitously it had. Uh, 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 this you know it the, uh, the the journey took off where but while I was at Harvard, we saw some success with it. Really? Yeah. Uh, we we because the first year is demanding, right? Very demanding. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and I would you know I would uh, uh, work on it on the weekends sometimes after class. Uh, we have a wonderful uh, resource at Harvard which is the iLab, mm-hmm. and that is essentially for entrepreneurs. You're not allowed to do any casework, any classwork there. You go there only for your for your startup. If you're working on your startup, if you need legal advice, legal help, you want to speak to venture capitalists, you want to see how is you know what is your approach in the valley. Anything you any advice you need, you get it over there. You can schedule office hours uh, with active, uh, passive VCs, investors, uh, and so you know I made a I made a lot of use of that of that place and resource. Uh, and so I met a few individuals, I met a few mentors of mine. Uh, and so at the end, the decision was mine to take time off. But what happened was that uh, I was made aware that this is a possibility, first of all. I see. To By somebody at iLabs. Yeah. This is a possibility to take some time off and work on And how much time are you allowed to take? Five years. Okay. So within so five you, years, you can go back anytime. Yeah. So is it safe to say that you thought that... Uh, Timing is a very important component of any business idea. The timing seemed right. Oh, absolutely. You know, see, when I think of business school, when I think of any education we get, first of all, I'm a big proponent of education. A massive proponent of, of, of good quality education. Yeah. But at the end of the day, we have to realize, and anybody who is applying to a business school, a master's, or even a bachelor's program has to realize that those four years plus two years later on in your life are very important years of your life. It's it's a huge block of time that you're spending on doing one thing, and at the end of the day, there are these these uh, these ed- these education uh, degrees are a means to an end. They're not the end in itself. Yeah, you know, uh, I found something that I uh, that I loved that I felt there was potential in. Um, I tried to avoid the confirmation bias. In fact, you know, we made a hypothesis of you know, um, of, you know, basically not forming a confirmation bias, you know, going the other way where it will not work out. 
and a lot of outside advice that we got was that you know, this is a good time to start and build it mm-hmm. uh, and so it was an individual decision but there was a lot of uh, you know advice that I had taken in uh, from the administration at HPS from my professors mentors. and they seemed supportive over. they very supportive and was there uh, anyone who said you shouldn't yes but a small percentage I see and why why were they or that percentage reluctant I think the from what I made out of it, the mentality was that you know finish your education and do what you want after yeah. that. That's a very like uh, Indian Indian uh, yeah. parent mentality, like yeah. finish your education in one block and then yeah. go to the other thing. Understandable, not wrong advice, but Absolutely I'm just saying not, understandable. You know, Absolutely not, yeah. and uh, you know I completely respect that advice, uh, and you sort of only give it because of concern for the other person. You know how can somebody have any malafide intentions? in that I just felt it was the right time to do it and I also felt that it was you know almost 50% in a two year program and almost 50% of your time uh, passes by very very quickly that one year from January to December where you were between your first and second year just passes by very very quickly um, and so sort of this also sort of gives you some time to just sit back and reflect on what do you want to take out of your MBA at the end of yeah, the year and at that time uh between Jan to December, what was your thought process? First six months is obviously just soaking in the subjects, the people. By December, you sort of start getting a flavor of what the MBA education could be like. But at the same time, your friends are trying for all kinds of things. Yeah. Somebody's going consulting, banking, so on and so forth. Mm. So what were you thinking sitting in your room or your mm. library in Jan to December? So this is a Jan to December period that I'm talking about the second semester of the first year, yeah. the summer break and the second semester of the first semester of the second year. That's right. Uh, so I attended only half of that mm. uh, at HPS. I came back, I think, at around September uh, that year. Uh, but I think the there was a single-minded focus at the time to make this work. Yeah. Uh, to at least, even if to not reach an end per se, but to have enough evidence to say that this is... Uh, probably not a bad decision that I've taken you know so I like to um, there was this uh, uh, there's this this quote I really like by Alexander who said that I don't recall the exact quote but the the meaning of that quote is that uh, not every decision has to be completely correct you know good generals the generals who win war they win even on bad taking bad decisions but they, they just put so much force behind it that they make it work for themselves at the end of the day yeah so no, I think uh, uh, the decision needs to work for you. Yeah. Most importantly, and never forget, like it's a like you can go back any time in yeah. in the period uh, yeah. if you wish to. Um, were your parents supportive overall? Yeah. So see, uh, but they, my parents have been extremely supportive um, since the very beginning. You know, like I said, I have uh, moved careers and 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 education degrees and whatnot more than once uh, in the past. From like I said, CBSE to IB, and then from banking to filmmaking. So they have been extremely supportive. You know, they have given me the leeway to chart my own path. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there was obviously, like you said, there's some concern uh, that comes in where you know we brainstorm together, and I think that is required. Their perspective. Is I call it GPA, general parental anxiety. Yeah. Uh, so I, I think that GPA was there. Uh, and rightly so, you know, that yeah. sort of helped me build perspective as well of, you know, f- of what the other side thinks. And it's really crucial. Yeah? This is a big life decision. Of course. Um, but, you know, like, um, 
let's try and really tease out um, what got you to Harvard, mm-hmm. right? Two parts. One is um, what made you think you should apply? And second is that uh, what do you think uh, worked for you in the application process? Hmm. So I had applied to HBS and I had applied to uh, a few film schools. And that was because I had spent about six years making a film and I had had a ball of a time. Making the film? Yeah. I had not restricted myself to... uh, say the direction team or the production team or the art team I had you know I had gone in uh, I had you know jumped in the deep end of the pool um, literally swimming with sharks and I had you know just tried to acquaint myself I was like a fly on the wall uh, with the most interesting and and accomplished people in filmmaking Uh, and I went in with a with a mindset that you know I'm not a creative person and that's what I when I when when I say I'm a proponent of a good quality education, that's what I want to change in our country. That uh, you know, a lot of people think that they are not creative if they can't paint and draw, or sing or dance. And creativity has it's an aspect of those those arts art forms, but creativity goes beyond that uh, as well. And so I realized that I had a creative mindset only after I entered a, a creative field uh, on the production or sort of the business end of it, or the business side of it. Um, so I applied to basically to your first question I applied to film schools because I wanted to you know uh, perfect as much as I can the the art and business of filmmaking I I feel there's a lot of potential for cinema in India even though we are improving there's still a lot to be done Um, and you know I applied to HPS for a few reasons first of all it was it was a dream I think like it is for for many people but I also felt that uh, you know, HBS allowed me, would allow me the freedom to navigate uh, my career post. You know, like I could still pursue filmmaking uh, if if I if I did a master's degree. But I also sort of, you know, I'm, uh, I, I have multiple interests in varied fields. You know, so I had just kept that option open that if I want to uh, say tomorrow not pursue filmmaking or if I want to pursue something else in the tech and media field. For example, I kept that option open. But if you see the entertainment program, entertainment and media program of Harvard is also very strong. A lot of people go to uh, California afterwards and work in film and entertainment companies. Uh, so I think it helped keep my options open. It was a dream of mine. I'm happy it worked out. And uh, to your question of um, sort of what stood out, I just think it was um, an, it was an application that was, at least my work experience was quite different from the rest. Tell us about that. Obviously, the banking is many people do some version yeah. of banking. Yeah. But you spent six years making the movie. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So um, we we produced a film called Nanak Shah Fakir. It's on the life and teachings of Guru Nanak. And uh, you know, as ambassadors, I like to call as ambassadors of the Sikh faith, um, we have as kids grown up listening to stories about Sikhism from our parents and grandparents. Uh, and that is a source of knowledge for a lot of people. And while not wrong, it is limited to the stories you hear. Uh, it awakens a curiosity. But in most cases, uh, you know, you do not have... Uh, you, people People do not, you know, know where a religion came from, what were its roots. For example, you know, many people do not know that it was never started as a religion. We have 10 gurus in Sikhism 
uh, spanning, I'd say, I think 200, 220 years, uh, 1500s to 69, yeah, about 200, 200 odd years. And it only became a religion by the 10th Guru, Guru Gobind Singh. When Guru Nanak started Sikhism, it was never meant to be a religion. So we felt that, uh, you know, in the last hundred years of cinema, in the last 500 years of Sikh history, uh, we have not really had compelling visual media uh, on the on history of Sikhs. There have been versions of it. So, you know, you'll see some, some shots of, say, the Golden Temple in a film, or you'll see some reference to a Jallianwala Bagh incident, maybe. But that is very recent. That's over the last few, you know, 40, 50, 60 years. Um, a lot of it, you know, where Sikhism started from, what were its roots, what do we really believe in, were not spoken of. And we just, and you know, a lot of families that you see today, they immigrate to other countries. And, uh, you know, children brought up in those countries lose touch with what the religion is. It's difficult to do so as well because you're living in a different culture and community altogether. Uh, and so our purpose was that you know we want to reach the message of our faith to the maximum people possible uh, just inform and there's so much that i learned about our, our religion as well uh, the reason it took i think six odd years was because we were uh, amateurs at filmmaking or beginners so to say so who had is no we? idea sorry who's we in this so we is me and my family we did this as a family project so to say and you uh, made a movie as a family project how cool yeah, is that very cool yeah so uh you know, when you're, when you're starting out in an unknown field uh, where you don't know anybody, you try to band together all resources possible. Uh, and, you know, you need trustworthy people. And I think the closest is, is family in that case. Uh, and sort of we have a... I have sort of a very, very creative family So in that sense. So um, we, we did it together. And the reason it took that long was because, like I said, we were beginners in the field and it was... Uh, um, you know, there were certain aspects that didn't go right. We had to, you know, we had to extend. It's a very sensitive sub subject. The production had to extend at a certain point. We had to redo certain certain aspects of the film. Um, it's a sensitive subject. So just sort of negotiating with authorities in, in itself took a very long time. But uh, I think it's one of the most brilliant experiences where, you know, I when I entered the film, we I entered on the production end. So like the business end, we're doing Excel sheets. and. What does the production person do? In a, in that uh, logistics basically okay. so you are basically a mediator between your producer uh, who is putting in the money and the creative people who are using that money and uh, so who you, was the producer your so family? we are, we produced okay. the film yeah um, and so you basically you know try to deploy money in in various aspects of the film whether mm. it's uh, you know shooting locations hiring the cast and crew um, the art team, the costume team, the makeup team. Uh, so you deploy money. You want to make sure your budgets are in control. That you're doing the you you you're shooting in you know the least expensive way if you can. But you're also sort of you know you also liaise with the with the creative teams to see that you're getting the best results out. You're getting a high quality film. So day one, our our approach was that we have to make a very very high quality film. This doesn't have to be, you know, a YouTube movie in terms of. Uh, its quality and stuff it has to be cinema level mm -hmm. uh, level quality uh, I would imagine it was, would be an expensive project creatively challenging project yes and plus the subject is so complex absolutely and so. you were in, immersed in it full time full time so yes. you basically quit your job and then yeah. got into it 
So I quit my job in 2011 and literally the next day onwards, I, uh, we started work on this. So just the scripting bit of it, you know, like finding a good script. We went through five or six script writers mm-hmm. uh, just to somebody who could do good research and, you know, get relevant parts of his life into, say, a two-hour movie. Uh, and, uh, you know, so I started with the production bit. Then I started, started supervising every aspect of the film. Uh, trying trying to see just how how it works you know you cannot really supervise something if you don't understand it mm-hmm. you have to you have to start off as a learner first and then you can try and be a Dilbert manager that way <laughs> <laughs> I could be yeah but um, no but absolutely I couldn't agree more it's very difficult to provide inputs or manage anything if you don't really understand the nuts and bolts yeah and that was I think the the uh, that was the effort that I tried to make with the production aspect of it, of trying to understand how does it connect to every aspect of a film. And so there's pre-production, which is scripting and making your sets, etc. Then there is your production time when you're shooting the entire film. And then there's your post-production time. You know, so various aspects of, of your creativity come out. You're working with editors, with visual effects people, with CGI people. When that gets done, you know... With we, what? With the CGI. What is that? Uh, computer graphics. I see. So it's a live action film, but uh, the the role of Guru Nanak is through uh, is through is done through CGI. Uh, there's no person who's played it. Why is that though? Uh, there are sensitivities in the religion where I they see. say no human is can play. Uh, That's so a, interesting. A, a demigod yeah. per se. Yeah. Um, though he came to earth in a human form. Uh, I don't quite agree with those leanings, but it's it's largely the accepted leaning. You have to you have to you know with um, subjects like religion, one has to be uh, conscious that no view should hurt anybody. It's a sensitive topic. Yeah. So I appreciate the fact that you all decided to do whatever you. I obviously don't know enough about the subject, yeah. but uh, I would imagine that having uh, computer graphics for Guru Nanak would have been quite challenging to create very challenging to create and what happened was that you know we created this really high quality live almost close to a live action image uh, throughout the film you know this we had a team in Bombay that worked with a team in LA to create these effects and what happened as a result was when it came out they were you know when we were negotiating with the authorities they were like it's oh it's too close to a live action it's a human form and whatnot. Uh, so the, the the visual effects of only him his character would read on so read on so many times. So what you see today on screen is a silhouette, is a light silhouette. Uh, but it, it was not created that way, you know. So just that visual effects was read on a lot of times. And uh, people were saying that if it's if authorities were saying if it looks like a human who could be reasonably attributed to Guru Nanak, that will not fly. Yeah. Okay. And how did you all take this? Because this is a pretty serious component of the movie yeah and this came up after we had finished when the film was ready you know so we were sort of talking to these people all the time and they only brought it up uh, when everything was done Mm -hmm. uh, which hurt us the most I think it was one of of the most challenging periods in in the period of making the film Um, so this is around 2015-16 started in 15 yes 2015 uh, when we first released the film and uh yeah, it was, it was uh, you know, they literally sat on our edit machines. They said, you know, change these aspects, change this, change that. And we said that, you know, we have gone into very, very deep research. We have, in fact, kept away from certain incidents or certain uh, 
um, depictions in his life that could be disputed. You know, we have kept away from all possible uh, possible disputes, controversies. Uh, and so obviously that was a very sort of tough period where we sort of redid the visual effects. We released the film in 2015, but we uh, pulled it out of theaters after about two weeks. Much to the dismay of a lot of international dis distributors of ours, because it was doing well in some international markets. And so after one week when we made the decision to withdraw it, mm -hmm. some international distributors refused to take it down. Um, how were you financing this? Were there external investors or was it uh, internal money only? Uh, both. So uh, we bootstrapped it. Mm -hmm. So it was, you know, our own funds. That so it's basically a startup which resulted exactly. in the form of a movie, yeah. right? Yeah. And like any startup, there was a twist in the tail towards yeah. the very end. Yeah. Unfo but unfortunately, it wasn't because of your customers. It was yeah. because of the, like the people who, yeah. uncontrollables, let's call it that. Wow, so it really, and how many like Sikhs are there in the world? Uh, so about 30 million. 30 million. 20 to 30 million, yeah. So I think for them, this would be the first movie, a first modern media in which this is being portrayed, or amongst the first, right? Absolutely, and uh, you have to think about it like this. It's not only the Sikhs who follow Guru Nanak. Sindhis follow Guru Nanak very, uh, very closely. Um, there's a certain section of Muslims that follow Guru Nanak because Guru Nanak's first uh, disciple was a, a man by the name of Bhai Mardana who was a Muslim 10 years older to him who travelled with him all through his life and played the Rabab. Uh, so there are followers of Bhai Mardana who uh, follow Guru Nanak. So there's a very interesting story actually. If you want to see how politics uh, in today's religion works, um, in 2005, there was a gentleman by the name of Ghulam Hussain uh, who came from Pakistan with his son, I think, to, uh, to the Golden Temple. And he requested to play the Rabab, an instrument played by Mardana, at the Golden Temple. Now, who is Ghulam Hussain? Ghulam Hussain is the great, great, great grand nephew or son of Bhai Mardana. He comes from that lineage. If you, he passed away in 2015, but if you went to his house in Pakistan, he has a photo of Guru Nanak on his wall. They, they sing from the Guru Granth Sahib. So that's how closely, you know, intertwined the religions are. But, you know, when he went to, and he said that, you know, we are from, uh, this is what a family lineage is. And, you know, after partition, now is the time we have come, got to come to India to fulfill this wish of visiting the Golden Temple. And we want to play in honor of our ancestors and Guru Nanak. We want to play the Rabab. And they told him that you have to be an Amritdhari Sikh to play. And this person was so offended. He said that the Gurus who established the religion, who made this Gurdwara, never asked us to shift from Islam to Sikhs. Who are you to do it? And there's a beautiful article on this subject, uh, on this subject as well. But it just goes to show how, you know, closely intertwined religions across the world are. They, they largely preach the same message. Right. Yesterday at, uh, at the Business of Food event, mm -hmm. one of the investors who was uh, present, one of the investors who has two IPOs, has invested in a large coffee chain and a large beverage as well. Um, he told me that he follows a Sikhism as well. And he's not a Sikh. But uh, clearly... Yeah. It's not 30 million, it's 30 million plus, plus, plus. Yeah. 
because there are people from all sorts of faiths yeah. who are moved by whatever the religion has to preach absolutely and uh, at least this person told me he does langar twice a week langar for the people who are not from india mm. it's uh, you can tell them a bit about it it's about the langar. communal lunch basically yeah, yeah. so um, langar was started by guru nanak and uh, you know he came he 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 was born at a time when there were you know huge uh, there was the, the, you know there was a lot of violence in our society against you know the moguls were ruling us or just sort of the pre mughal era i'm sorry um, and uh, you know there was a lot of sort of violence in the state there was a lot of atrocities against women and hindus and there was a lot of division in the community and uh, his sole purpose was that uh, you know you can divide people by religion but ultimately we are the creation of the same god there is so this is what sikhism believes in is uh, there is one god you know and so we've had 10 messengers of god as they call the 10 gurus um and so he started langar to make men and women of different religions castes and creeds sit together and have the same meal because let's not forget at the time there was huge casteism in the society uh, you know the, the lower caste would eat a different meal from different vessels um it was you know different from for the for the rich community the upper caste where they had you know more they had fresher meals um and so his that's where the langar came from the community communal meal came from where the same meal was cooked in the same vessel for everybody to sit down and eat together you know powerful so, concept a very very powerful concept because you know we are ever since then we have just moved away from this concept So this person that I was telling you about, yeah. uh, a, a person who's not sick by birth, feels moved by the religion, and incidentally, I think people like that would have loved to pursue the movie, consume the content, but yeah. for weren't for whatever reason, and it gets me to a very important lesson. Lesson that I wanted to discuss that, mm. in the fine print, sometimes you don't want to lose the larger picture. Yeah, and there's also a big cognitive bias here, to a man with a hammer. everything appears a nail mm. so i think for everyone who has to consume the content really benefit from the content they would have noticed something very different but to a person who wants to you know regulate and uh, control yeah. they are constantly looking for those flag and they are ready to squash it yeah. uh, squash it without uh, deference to context which i think it's such a fascinating business and life lesson for you early on right yeah. you know there is this author by the name of Lawrence Peters and uh, he said that some matters some issues are so complex that you have to be very intelligent uh, and highly informed just to be undecided about it yeah and that is the case with the religion around the world right that uh, you know we all see from a certain lens um and we recognize that early on actually in the film when we were negotiating with these authorities that you know uh we are sort of willing to understand your perspective we want to understand your perspective so that you know we want the message so by the way this film is a non commercial venture for us we don't take any income or profits from this film uh and so see we said our sole purpose is to get the message to the wider audience and so i think when we uh, uh you know when we were negotiating with them our aim was to get as wide a perspective as possible and when we look at religion around the world it's colored in a, a single colored lens you know people see it a certain way only mm-hmm. uh 
and so there are divisions in a certain religion when people from opposing perspectives clash right yeah. but anyway so just moving on as a person you and a family it would have been a humbling challenging mm-hmm. um maybe infuriating at times experience for you you dealt with it mm-hmm. um then what happened you negotiate with the authorities reached a, a midpoint mm-hmm. which was acceptable to everyone then launched yes so we spent uh, 2015 onwards we spent almost 2 years a year and a half two years negotiating getting permissions uh, made changes as desired uh, reshot the film in certain ways uh, and that sort of also allowed us some more time to get more talent on the board on board um, sort of add some stuff to the film uh, so we we were ready to launch in uh, in uh, april 2018 we got the permissions you know they were with us during our launch and everything but i think what 10 days or so before these guys put pulled up permissions again um, and if you see it's a very small group of sort of right wing fundamentalists who disagree with probably the fact that there should be a film because you should understand today that um, children unfortunately don't read as much anymore mm-hmm. you know we consume they consume visual media and this is the best way to reach a message and uh, so we they pulled permissions out we tried to negotiate as much as we could the supreme court ruled in our favor where they said that you know this is a very good pious film uh, that has to the message of which has to reach the masses and this is all happening last year this all happened last year yes i see so, so supreme court lo- ruled in your favor ruled in our favor mm-hmm. uh, something very interesting happened mr ram jethmalani saw the film and he came and voluntarily spoke for us in the courts and he said that I want to. I I believe I told the courts at the time. I want to see what the decision of the court is on this film because I am mm-hmm. a big believer of Guru Nanak myself. Uh, and so a lot of these very wonderful souls came together uh, during that period of time. But see, our this is how I look at it, right? So I look at the silver lining, saying that um, even if we had released it in theaters, which was obviously a dream for us, uh, it would have reached a certain audience mm-hmm. around the world for a certain period of time. our reach was always going to come through the digital aspect yeah through the youtube and through netflix and through itunes etc so the film is on those platforms today it's on itunes and google play and, and amazon instant video youtube as well youtube as well mm-hmm. uh, so that is where we are getting the reach that we wanted in the first place yeah yeah you know? so it probably didn't work out in in the manner that we had planned for it to mm. but it has worked out well nevertheless have you like did you ever thought of uh, putting it on the streaming platforms uh, like the netflixes of the world and hotstars of the world maybe yeah so basically um, there are two times types of these videos so there's a tra- there's t watch is a transaction video on demand which is what itunes is and google play is uh, and youtube movies is and there's there's a subscription video which is what netflix and what not is uh so the plan is to put it on a streaming platform but we wanted to you know take the route of first um putting it on a transaction platform and then yeah. on a streaming platform yeah yeah so i think look this is going on 6 years you made the movie mm-hmm. then you're spending your time even today trying to uh take it to the audience for which this was a non-commercial venture was made uh why when was this film school and business school application happening exactly So this was happening simultaneously I would say this oh, was happening Oh so you were dividing your day between yeah, both I yeah. see Um this was about 2015 I think 2015 is when the fo- thought first occurred to you that yeah. you should go Yeah Is that right Yeah Okay 
So 2015 was around the time that I was doing my applications. Hmm. So you, uh, what was the first thing that you did when you decided to, because you're doing film school, right? That requires a GRE, I suppose, or? No. So they didn't require any, no. but business schools do need a MBA, oh, sorry, GMAT. Yeah. So how did you study for that? How did you manage all of this? Um, so I think there was a little pre-planning that went into it. It was not like, you know, I decided that I'll apply this application cycle. Mm-hmm. So way before that application cycle came, I think in 2015, I had, uh, uh, you know, made up my mind that almost a few months in advance that I want to apply. Uh, and so I sort of took, you know, did some reflection, did some brainstorming, met some of my mentors to see if this is the right time to go or not also. Um, so, yeah, that period when I had decided I'll apply the next application cycle was when I studied and for my GMAT and stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, how did the GMAT go? Uh, it went well. It was uh, it t- it took a couple of attempts, but uh, it went well. And uh, I think I sort of gave myself some time. Uh, you know, I started. I remember at that time I started de- delegating more work. Uh, so the idea was not to put in uh, eight hours every day, but at least put in some time every day. Uh, For GMAT. For GMAT. I so I think what we... Yeah, it won't take eight hours for sure. Yeah. yeah. But I think a lot of people don't realize is they're like, okay, we'll do eight, ten hours on a Saturday and Sunday and then do the GMAT mm-hmm. in two months. I think GMAT or any testing for that matter is more about consistently studying for it rather than yeah. doing a lot at once. You know, Summer, I have... Uh, for GMAT, um, because we've had this discussion with many people who've got different scores, my biggest uh, realization for GMAT is people tend to repeat their mistakes... Mm-hmm. people just need to know where they falter and correct it mm-hmm. it's not the it's not necessarily a function of number of hours mm-hmm. it's first step is identifying where you tend to make mistakes is it on grammar is it on math is it on reading comprehension what what have you and then doing focus practice a lot of students because they feel that hard work will lead to success or more hours will lead to a better score they just keep practicing, keep practicing without doing enough reflection on where the mistakes happen. Yeah. And in fact, a lot of people um, who I've known who've managed to get decent scores without spending too much time are the ones who managed to do very focused practice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, so you took the GMAT mm-hmm. um, and then you decided to apply to some film schools, Harvard Business School. Mm-hmm. Um, what was the essay writing process like? Essentially, your story was fascinating, but putting it down on paper can be challenging. Yeah, so I think you um, you have to realize at the end of the day what goal are you trying to 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 reach towards. So, film school applications I found were very challenging, mm-hmm. more challenging than the business school applications. Tell because, us more. Um, you know, you have to. They ask you to write, I think, small versions of scripts. Uh, you know, there are sort of a lot of. Uh, essay questions that range from range from the business aspect to your life aspect to the creative aspect of what you've achieved so it really really forces you to you know just delve deep into sort of what you have done and how does it apply to uh, a film school education um so yeah i remember just that you know the creative bit of it where you are you know making videos of yourself or if you're sort of making some uh, some promotional video to send to them or if you're writing a script for example you you can't come up with it overnight or even in a week you, know? you have to give it enough time you have, your application has to stand out at the end of the day uh, 
So I found that to be very, very challenging. Uh, the essay writing pro process, uh, you know, I could, I could only write what I knew about myself. Uh, we have to understand something and people who apply to business school have to understand something that these counselors who, who look at your application have been reading what they get what 10,000 applications roughly a school gets 10,000 applications a year they've been reading 10,000 applications every year for the last 20-30 years you know uh, there is very little to no chance that you will fool them in an application so I could only write what I knew that was my process so I was sort of very genuine and honest in my paper of what I have done, what I have learned, what I have the mistakes I have made and what I hope to achieve from an education. Um, and so I think candor is something that's, that's very important. Uh, but you also have to, you know, make sure that uh, there is sort of some brevity to what you're writing. It's very easy to write uh, long essays. It's much difficult to write shorter prose. And uh, so I think brevity is quite important. And uh, so that was a process, I think. I was not trying to make anything up because I knew that uh, in a business school, this is a, mine is a different application with different work experience. So if I just stayed true and honest to what I have done, uh, I think just my work experience will do its talking. Yeah. And uh, there are two, two things you mentioned. One was the fact that you can only write about yourself. Yeah which means that first you need to try and know yourself a little more. Hmm. Otherwise, how will you write what you want to do before business school, yeah. what you want to do after, what will you do at business school? It can be challenging. And the other aspect of it is uh, how do you condense a fairly diverse set of work experiences hmm. into 300, 400 words? Yeah. So first part, how did you go about trying to understand your intrinsic motivation and ex extrinsic motivation? So I am, you know, uh, I'm very passionate about writing. And uh, the first, one of the very early lessons that I have learned is that uh, you can't edit a blank piece of paper. You can't <laughs> edit words that are not there. Yeah. So I think the very first step is something we call and something my coach tells me is a discovery draft where you just empty your mind out on the paper. You, like, you literally write everything on, on paper, right? And that is your first draft, if you want to call it, or a pre-draft, I don't know. Um, and before, you know, after you have done that, like this is sort of my writing process also in general, that after I do that, after that I sort of make certain goals of what I want this essay to communicate in bullet points, you know? So this is what I want, this is how I want it to conclude. Right. This is what I want my conclusion to be. How do I reach that conclusion? Then I work backwards. Uh, and so when I have those five, ten points that I want to communicate, then I sort of start editing my my content mm -hmm. out uh, from there. Um, and did you have many people review it? Few people review it? Few. Why few? And when you say few, how many? I had about three people review it. Mm -hmm. In total. And did you accept all their suggestions? Yes. Why? Because these were three people who were not emotionally related to me. So important. It is extremely important. I think emotion plays a huge role, even in something as small as brevity, you know. Like if you have a family member, for example, checking your essay, reading your essay, they'll be like, oh, you know, of course you've done a lot of work, not in just writing this essay, but in your work experience, of course you should mention it. 
there is uh, an objective review is is very very difficult from somebody who's very who's emotionally concerned about mm-hmm. it and so you show it to them of course you take their feedback because like for example i have very good writers in my family so of course i show it to them but you take feedback with a pinch of salt yeah yeah i think you should listen to everyone but take feedback yeah. uh, you know, contextually so the essays are done one important part of an essay that a lot of students struggle to write and it is hard what do you want to do after business school or why are you applying to business school mm-hmm. i think why you you would have been able to explain through your story but to be able to project what you want to do after needs at least a hypothesis yeah. what was that hypothesis for you what was the hypothesis is a good question like what did you think you would end up doing and is artry somewhat what you mentioned or is it Uh, different uh it's along the same lines um you know i had got some very good advice that you know when i was applying to business school that uh you know what they want to very genuinely see in your application and not just business school but any master good masters program is that why do you want to spend two prime years of your life with us you know brand name aside of a good institutional side it's you know you could it's a lot of money it's a lot of time you know you could invest that anywhere and you know try and reach the goal you're trying to reach because the moment you graduate you're again competing with thousands of people for jobs and you're trying to you know repay loans and what not so why do you want to spend two years on this and so sort of that really helps you first identify gaps of you know what what skill set you have and what you hope to gain from a business school education and once you sort of identify that gap of what you want to fill in your skill set in your uh, career uh, experience uh, that sort of helps i think you for every individual helps you project what you want to do later on in life as well so a lot of this came to me from my film school applications that uh, you know when i was talking about how i see the film industry and the entertainment industry really helped me define what what i want my role to be in that value chain how do i see myself creating value mm-hmm. you know yeah um it should matter that uh, if i'm not part of that value chain that that value chain does lose something mm-hmm. and sort of what i'm what, what skills that am i trying to acquire right uh, and that sort of really helped me project so it's artery is on similar lines of course um but the um, you know the, the the high level mission was to to like i said you know there's a the reason i applied to film schools was because i felt there's a lot to be done in this space in india yeah yeah and that was my hypothesis that you know we can really enhance storytelling right and you see you know i mean in a in a sense i would like to you know humbly say that the hypothesis did play out well i mean if you see it's the last 3 4 years that uh, content wars have really taken off in india they really like, have yeah mass and india is the biggest market for it You know. the whole function this podcast is yeah. part of the i won't call it a war but yeah. content uh, game yeah. right it's an important uh, component of the equation yeah. i do want to share that um, when business schools ask this question what do you want to do after or why are you applying they're not necessarily asking you to hold you accountable that okay you wrote this you're doing something else did you like did you write without intending to do so yeah. i believe that they're asking just to see whether the the student can create a a believable logical thoughtful 
uh, analysis of what he or she plus business school could lead to. Yeah. And of course, past experience plays a role. How you how you've built up, spent your two years plays mm. a role. How mm. you've been influenced by play, by business school peers has played a role. Because mm. one important reason why people go to school is to learn from peers. And I right. think a lot of your motivation and what you want to do can change. And business school, business schools and all graduate programs know that. Mm. But they ask this just to see whether the person can construct a logical thought process, yeah. or at that time, what's the best the person can come up with. Absolutely, and you know, I will. Uh, I I remember when I was uh, I was uh, doing my interviews. Um, one of the admission officers was giving us a talk uh, after our interviews. And you went to Boston to take the yeah, interview. To take the interview, yeah. and um, she said something very interesting at the time. She said that when you come, uh, when and if you come to HPS or you go to any business school. Keep in mind, she said, have some idea of what you want to do, but don't have a rigid mindset. Mm-hmm. She said, we see a lot of applications and we interview a lot of people who say that I come from investment banking and private equity or private equity and I want to go back into it. Mm-hmm. Like I started with this company and I want to go back to this company. And see, it's it's a fair assessment to have. It's, it's good clarity to have. But she said that have certain flexibility of what you will be exposed to. She said, I have seen students go from... Uh, you know, healthcare to non-profits, from, from military to tech, uh, you know, there have been those kind of transitions as well. Because these people were probably not exposed to that field before, they were exposed to it after they came to business school. Yeah. So I have a certain idea of uh, what value you want to add, just the industry you want to add it and keep yeah. that open. Keep that in mind, you learn from your peers, one should have a hypothesis and be open to new ideas. Yeah. It doesn't mean that you come up with a new career plan every day. Yeah. But at some point, sure, like it helps to know all of these things. Yeah. You know, do you mind talking a bit about your interview? Like, how was the experience like? How long was it? Uh, was it stressful? How did you prepare? All of that. Hmm. Of course. So, I mean, uh, it, these interviews are about 30-odd minutes, 30-40 minutes. Uh, and it can, I had one person interviewing me. It can change. I mean, there can be one or more people interviewing you. Um, so, I had really prepared on... You know, I had really prepared on my background well. You know, you really have to uh, know your work experience. You have to know yourself backwards. You have to know your resume backwards. Uh, You have to prepare. Preparation comes just in time, just in sense, in the sense of being cohesive and coherent in trying to communicate a point. Uh, I think when we talk about preparation, it's obviously everybody knows their background well, unless you are sort of fluffing in your essays and your resume, which... Uh, I do not recommend people do but uh, I think the only difference comes in sort of communicating the point you're trying to communicate Mm -hmm. Uh, so that's where sort of the preparation came in that if I am talking about uh, my work experience because see it's a 30 minute interview you know you have to uh, it's a it's a 30 minute interview that you have to structure the interview will ask you one question and the next few minutes are yours how you answer will probably lead to the next question. Mm-hmm. So you, I think that's where the preparation comes in of how do you want the interview to evolve over the 30 minutes yeah. so that you make your most important points right. in the most coherent way. You just want, that's how you want the 30 minutes to, 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 to go about. And so that's where the preparation came in and if you've done so much work, you know, like I could easily just talk about six years of filmmaking for two hours. 
let alone half an hour. You know, so what points do I want to make? How do I want to make it? How does it apply to the answer in answering that question coherently? Uh, am I answering what the interviewer is looking towards? Um, but I think something also I I had prepared for, not specifically for the interview, but over my over my uh, career uh, has been of following multiple interests. Mm-hmm. So you know I have interests beyond filmmaking as well. Uh, in tech, in tennis, in sports, in uh, the luxury market. So I think that question came up as well. That, you know, sure, you've done a lot in filmmaking, but what else do you like to do? Mm-hmm. And that's very important, not just to uh, education, but in career as well. You know, how do you de-stress? Uh, what do you like to read about? How do you learn from a person you admire yeah. in a different context and try and, yeah. you know, like apply it in a different yeah. one? So that was some part of the interview as well. So I think knowing your background really well and just making sure that you are you you practice being coherent and cohesive and trying to communicate the value accretive points mm-hmm. in an interview of yourself. Mm-hmm. I think those are very important. So interviews are also about fighting with yourself. You know, in uh, ne- did you take negotiation in the first year? We have it as a second year okay. course. So, um, the basic rule of negotiation is whoever cares less about the outcome usually wins. Interview is not a negotiation, but there yeah. is clearly like, you know, one person has is cares a little more mm-hmm. and one person cares a little less. And I think that's where it gets a little challenging because a lot of students feel the need to sell themselves at the interview. And I feel that sometimes that's where things start going wrong. Mm-hmm. How did you fight this urge to talk more about certain aspects of pitch yourself really hard and still be authentic so I think the focus is on being authentic but uh, you know a lot of times uh, again it's a, a habit I didn't that I developed not only for uh, for the interview but over the last few years that helped me in my interview is that we like to speak and we don't like to listen as much and a lot of times in answering questions uh, I feel, and I sort of make this makes some of these mistakes even today, and it's sort of a daily improvement that I work towards. If you really listen to the question consciously, uh, that is, I think, half the job done. A lot of people, I think, don't listen very consciously. Mm-hmm. I think conscious listening of what the interviewer is really trying to ask, and I think there's a sort of rush to answer, which I also had early on, and I sort of prepared for it. There is a rush to answer. If somebody asks you a question, I have to immediately start answering. There's no harm in taking 20 seconds to form your thought process. Uh, because, you know, the end of your answer probably stays more yeah. than the beginning. Yeah. So if you, even if you take 15, 10, 15 seconds to form your thought process, yeah. if you form a good coherent thought, that's what will stay, not the fact that you took 10 seconds off to think about it. You know, that's, that's a really interesting point. If you look at history and look at some of the speakers, more effective ones, a lot of them are just people who who've stood at the mic and taken their time to find their comfort level with the audience, with the mic, so on and so forth, and then, you know, launch into whatever they have to. And the other thing is that sometimes deliberately waiting or taking a few seconds, if you really need to, just makes the interview a little less scripted. Otherwise, it's what? Like a volley of question and answer, question and answer. In fact, I've seen that people who are are extremely articulate sometimes run the risk of uh, sounding, you know, almost over-prepared, scripted, like an actor. And mm-hmm. you don't want to do that. Yeah. 
it shows bad acting and bad preparation in an yeah. interview for you're an acting and I, the person can tell you're acting it just means that you're not doing a good job yeah. basic means don't act in an interview second is feel free to take a pause if you need to yeah. and third is listen carefully that's a great point that you made and fourth is answer the question yeah. don't answer the question you wish you were asked yeah um so that's these are precious insights after but that but this this point that you made about you know scripted versus unscripted you know if you saw the google io recently i think it was last year where um, where i i think uh, satya nadella oh sorry not satya i'm sorry where well, well, sundar pichai was was showing it off uh, the reason that voice recognition that voice software sounded so authentic was because it took pauses with an um and an ah yeah uh, that made it sound a little human and more believable mm-hmm. and made the person on the other side believe that it's a human calling right yeah i think it's critical authenticity um you know we're coming towards the close of the interview i just want to understand that uh, now that you're in a different zone you 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 you're wearing the hat of an entrepreneur as well as that of student uh, um what if anything keeps you up at night and how do you mitigate your first world anxieties if i might call them that <laughs> hmm interesting question what keeps me up at night So I have this habit where this sort of I I have a habit of carrying a lot of uh notebooks with me and so there's one in my pocket always is a few in my bag and so the night before I always uh, plan out the following day on a Sunday evening I'll plan out the week etc and uh so anything that's challenging that that I'm not so sure how I'll address uh on a daily sense those keep me up uh anything new that i'm taking up like i have sort of taken up a new assignment right now as in the global shapers community so that is sort of that keeps me up right now of how i'm going to address it it's a very new space for me um and also i think what keeps me up is uh just you know there are aspects like i said i have multiple interests so there are aspects that i'm not actively working on but want to work on I think that keeps me up. When will I get the time to do that? Right. Uh, so one of those is the education space. I really want to do something in the education, and I sort of have now the chance to do it through the global shapers community. So that has been keeping me up for a very long time. Yeah. Of, yeah. Um. Do you have any parting advice for uh, anyone thinking of business school, or anyone thinking of making a movie, or anyone thinking about becoming a shaper? Hmm. I think tenacity is generally very important uh, when it comes to not I only do those three fields but anything. I think once you've made up your mind, then don't take you know take half measures. Uh, once you've made up your mind that this is what you want to do, I think then just dive into the deep end uh, and you know try and swim your way through it. So did Federer teach you this? <laughs> I know you enjoy Federer. We can Fedra. have an entire podcast on this Roger Federer. No, but why don't but we end this podcast on the lessons from Federer and especially you know how can a potential MBA applicant a filmmaker and a would be shaper think about it? Yeah, so if I think one of the uh, one of the things that stands out about Federer is he celebrated his 38th birthday 4 days back, uh, 3 days back and he's world number 3 right now at 38 years old. um i think one of the lessons that you learn from him is the importance of metamorphosis 
for humans, of metamorphizing for humans. Uh, if you saw Federer as a youngster playing tennis, he was one of the most hot-headed people on the tennis court. He used to break rackets, he would throw tantrums, uh, he would walk off as a junior and a, and a just turn, a newly turned professional. And you cannot really, pe- most people don't know about this. Because when you see him on court today, you hardly even hear him grunt, uh, forget breaking rackets. He completely changed his uh, his temper, his the natural aggress- aggression that comes to an athlete. He completely changed that. He's one of the calmest players on court today. And if you want to turn, if you want to think about planning long term, just think, just see what Federer has done. Because uh, in a year, uh, the tennis schedule lasts about eleven months one month is off in which is off season basically so they're training for the at least two to three weeks of that one month so essentially you're getting what two weeks off in a year uh, you bob your body rarely gets to cool down and the, this is when you're playing the highest levels of tennis so when he was 22 23 years old when he won his first grand slam title he made the decision that i want to play really really late into my career so he started missing some too he didn't play everything that's said to play because if you play, you can't. If you play everything there is to play, you can't have a very long career. Your body just wears off. Yeah. So I think having the uh, having the vision, but also the courage to say that you know I'm at my peak and I'm not playing. Yeah. Uh, you so. gotta say no to yeah. things if you want to succeed. And what you end, what you said now is perfect segue to for us to end the podcast because now. Hopefully, with the 100-year life research that's happening, all of us are going to live much longer, which means that we'll have to work much later, which yeah. means that we have to be at our peak like Federer for a longer period of longer time. Period of time yeah. So better choices, stronger mental models, yeah. and playing long-term games with long-term yeah. people. Summer, it has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. Thank and you we're so really much. excited Thank to you. do a follow-up. Thank you for